welcome to Value-Based Care Insights, brought to you by Illumina Health Partners, a national healthcare consulting firm focused on improving the strategic, financial, and operational performance of provider organizations. On this program, we will explore trends and share valuable insights on how health systems and medical groups can optimize their performance to meet the demands of this increasingly complex healthcare environment and shift to transform the delivery of care. Value-Based Care Insights is hosted by Daniel Marino, managing partner of Lumina Health Partners. Daniel has been in the industry for over three decades and specializes in shaping strategic initiatives for organizations in areas such as population health, clinical integration, physician alignment, information technology, and data analytics. For additional insights, visit luminahp.com and sign up for our newsletter. Dan, over to you. Welcome to Value-Based Care Insights. I am your host, Daniel Marino. As we look around the country and see some of the changes that are happening with medical groups, whether you're an employed medical group or an independent medical group, we're seeing a lot of pressure being placed on either health systems or these medical groups related to some of the competition that's coming into their market with private equity or let's say specialty medical groups such as cardiovascular services or gastro or even cancer not being able to sustain their financial performance like they used to. And the interesting thing that we're seeing right now is the pressure that's being placed on these specialty medical groups are really coming from both sides. So the pressures are coming from the payers wanting to obviously lower the reimbursement. Those pressures are coming from shifts in site of service. Not so much from shifts in value-based care, although some areas of cancer and some of the specialty service lines, we are seeing a little bit of pressure from value-based care from the payers, but mostly from fee-for-service. But we're also seeing these pressures, what I would call from bottom up, which are really the rising costs. And some of these um, specialty care physicians and even primary care, for instance, aren't able to maintain their incomes like they used to, or their practices are, are really financially challenged. So it's forcing them to look at different alternatives, whether that would be going private equity, becoming employed by their hospital, or maybe even joining another larger independent medical group. Well, interesting topic, one that we've been spending a lot of time talking to uh, hospital leaders around the country. And uh, here today to help me with this conversation, talk through it a little bit is my colleague, Lucy Zielinski. Lucy, welcome. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for having me. So Dan, I'm going to flip the tables on you. You're the host of the show. And I know you've been doing quite a bit of work in this space recently. We've had several clients um, that you've worked with them on some specialty service lines, as well as supported many health systems uh, in their strategy to systemness. You know, as you know, organizations, healthcare organizations these days um, really want to grow their market share and really improve that quality and, and lower costs around value-based care. So what, what have been some of the trends that you've been seeing across the country as they relate to service lines? Yeah, it's it's interesting. When you look around the country, it's it's a little different in each of the markets, but it's also different by the different clinical specialties. So for instance, 
Um, as we know, a few years ago when they changed, Medicare changed the reimbursement with cardiovascular services. The, the year that followed was a, a, a tremendous amount of, of, of movement towards or shift towards employment for cardiology, right? So even today, there's very few independent cardiology or cardiovascular groups are, they're really employed. Now we're seeing that that continued trend occurring um, in other specialties. So for instance, orthopedics, if you will, they're not so much becoming employed by the hospitals, but what we're seeing is private equity coming in and offering these big dollars to, to take over the groups. And um, it's it's part of their strategy to shift to say in, uh, more of an ACASC type of a, a structure or or something in that regard. Also seeing a lot of, of shifts and changes in gastroenterology and cancer as well. And as I said in my opening remarks, a lot of it is because of of the cost pressures. So I, I would say that the the biggest trend right now is with private equity coming in the market. Um, second to that is some of these non-traditional providers like Walgreens, um, Optum has been very aggressive in this space and a few of the other non-traditional providers coming in and um, employing or purchasing these practices. And then third, they are looking to either the health systems or other independent groups in their market to merge or to, to form some type of joint venture. Mm -hmm. And Dan, I think many of these health systems are achieving this systemness through strategy-driven service lines. And what do you what do you think are those goals? Those top goals for these service line structures? Well, yeah, you're you're right. I think that the the systemness that we're seeing here um, is taking on a couple of different forms. It's not necessarily employing these medical groups. Um, it's creating these strategic partnerships, right? So right. it's not it's not a single solution like it was a number of years ago when cardiovascular became employed. So we're seeing different types of strategic partnerships. And that's important to understand within the strategy as leaders are thinking about how to protect the particularly the specialty services within their within their community. So you know, I think your question's a good one. What at the end of the day, what's the goal? Well, the goal is to make sure that you have a sound relationship between the specialty providers, especially if they're independent, right? These cancer uh, oncology groups or ENT groups or orthopedics, if they're independent, you as a hospital leader wanna make sure that you have this strong relationship. And even for the, the leaders of, of these specialty service lines or these independent medical groups, um, you also want to make sure that your financial position is protected. So the goal is to create the relationship, but you have to do it in a way that it's a win-win, right? Focusing on growth, focusing on cost management, focusing on ensuring that the, the, the financial performance and, and even the well-being of their physicians, if you will, are, are really improving and not necessarily creating more pressure on these individuals. Yeah, Dan, and I think quality is probably another one, just really improving those clinical outcomes as well as that patient experience. Because as you know, when you have a whole bunch of groups doing the same procedures, there there's a lot of variation. They're doing it different ways. So clinical variation, I think, is, is definitely a challenge 
with multiple groups. So I think this yeah. is where service lines come into play as well. Yeah, you, you're absolutely right. And focusing on clinical variation reduction is important, certainly when you think about um, shifting to value-based care, but also in managing costs. The other thing that I think is a big driver here, Lucy, is these strategic partnerships that you begin to create helps you solve the access issue. And right now there is a significant um, uh, undersupply, if you will, of physicians, of providers by clinical service lines. Um, and, and, and there's an over demand by patients, right? I mean, in some cases, orthopedics, it takes three months to get in to see an orthopedic physician. As you know, we're working with um, one cardiovascular group right now, and it's close to 60 days to get for a new patient visit. That's not sustainable. Wow. So by creating these strategic partnerships and, and allowing the availability of more resources, and it's not just human capital resources, but it's technical resources, you help to create the strategy to improve access. And that has benefits all the way through the health system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Dan. And I think another point too is, uh, you know, the physician burnout, right? And I think service lines really involve physicians. Uh, so they're more engaged and there's better alignment. Uh, and they aim at better quality improvement because oh, you yeah. have a team working on things now. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, you know, I... I can't help but think that the underlying driver for primary care and some of these changes that have occurred in primary care um, are really as a big result of, of uh, primary care physician burnout, right? Um, you know, it, it, it's very tiresome for primary care physicians. So, you know, when you've got um, a Walgreens coming to you, or you have a, a CVS coming to you, or you have even an Optum coming to you and saying, look, we're going to reduce your administrative pressures by 20%. You know, we're going to cut the time that you're spending completing your, you know, in-basket of your EHR. Um, we're going to give you more resources. That's very appealing to a physician who historically has been working 10, 12, 14 hours a day, right? Sure Nobody is. wants to sustain that. It sure is. It definitely is. Uh, so the primary care physicians, I think, um, you know, are are really interested in in some of this service line strategy. How do you think uh, it is different for primary care physicians versus specialists? Well, I think for primary care, as we talked about, I think the the drivers, the incentives, um, are a little bit different. They um, they're focusing on creating a better, let's say, um, life environment for themselves, a well, you know, improving their well-being. Um, and then I think for specialists, it's really about maintaining their financial performance and maintaining what they've built, particularly if you have a um, specialty group like cancer who, you know, has been around for 20, 25 years, they're independent, they may lead the market, um, you know, they want to make sure they can continue, continue to grow. So when you think about that, the strategic implications and the directions that you go are slightly different for primary care than for specialty care. 
so it's important for leaders to really begin to think about what are those those drivers that are going to create the right levels of success and and you know the question that you had asked I think is a good one really focusing on on what's the goal as we start to advance our clinical service lines mm-hmm. yeah so what is the goal like what, what what would you say would be the top goal for pri- especially for primary care service lines well I think I think there's a couple of 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 things that are impacting that goal. I think you have to look at what the reimbursement is in your market and and how um, how proficient value-based care is in your market, particularly risk-based contracts. So I had the opportunity not too long ago to talk with a, an administrator, a physician administrator actually, of a large um, health system that they're taking a very interesting perspective with their primary care. What they're actually doing, they've got probably 150, 200 primary care physicians. They've actually carved their primary care out of their fully multi-specially employed medical group. And they've created primary care as a special, as a separate entity. And they've done that for, for one main reason. It's because these full risk global capitation contracts are really advancing in their market. So they're basically saying to their medical groups, to their specialists and to primary care, look, primary care, we're going to give you the ability to manage this. We're going to give you the autonomy to really um, not only treat the patient, make sure you're managing quality, efficiency, and utilization, but we're also wanting you to take the lead on working with the specialists. And I'll tell you, so I, I sort of asked once I heard the strategy, I thought it was really interesting because obviously for a big health system, it impacts referrals, right? I mean, that's, if I was the administrator, that's what I'd be thinking about. So I asked the question, well, you know, how are the specialists responding to this? And he said, great. He says, it's it's put sort of the specialists on notice that they have to think about delivering care differently. You need to focus on referral management, right? Following up with the PCPs, Um working through clinical pathways and protocols for their specialty to make sure that they are providing efficiencies of of care. Um, And to your point earlier, cutting down on some of that clinical variation reduction. So I think the the primary care strategy in particular, it's not a one-size-fits-all. It's really dependent on the market. It's really dependent on the reimbursement. It's really dependent on whether your primary care physicians are employed or whether they're independent. Yeah, and, and that makes sense, Dan. You know, I think of uh, MSSP, especially when organizations are in a model where they they have downside risk. Uh, it's, it's very critical that they manage that patient population. And what better way to do it is through a primary care service right. line that addresses um, some of those chronic conditions that are throwing off some of those costs yeah. and care, yeah. you know, putting care management services around those. Yeah, you're you're absolutely you're absolutely right. And then when you think of specialty care, you know, it it needs to be integrated. The strategy needs to be integrated, but it is a little bit different. Um, the strategy for specialty care, I guess, you know, it really depends upon if it, if they're employed specialists or they're independent. If they're independent specialty groups, um, there's, a, there's a lot more vulnerability there to have another organization such as private equity or some of these non-traditional providers come into your market and to employ them, right? Mm-hmm. So um, that strategy really has to focus on 
how we can continue to support growth, how we can continue to um, create alignment with the, the health system or other providers in the market. So we are protecting the, the care that we're delivering to patients in that community. That, that becomes really critical. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Dan, you and I have done quite a bit of work with medical groups in the past around strategy. And this just seems to me that medical groups should be considering some of these service lines as, as really a medical group mm -hmm. strategy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's interesting over the years and, you know, we, we've been doing this for years. I bet you I've been working with medical group strategy for 20 some plus years, at least. Um, there's there historically has not been a lot of focus on, on growing this strategy of clinical service lines. And now with the pressures that are being placed on, um, you know, the, either the medical groups or the health systems or even the communities, there is a larger focus there. If you're just tuning in, I'm Daniel Marino, and you're listening to Value-Based Care Insights. I'm talking today with Lucy Zelensky, and we're having a, a fascinating discussion on the on clinical service lines and their impact on advancing medical group strategies. Um, so Lucy, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I, I think as you start to think about what those, those strategies are for the, the specialist, for instance, um, focusing that attention on what the goal is, how you begin to integrate, how you begin to think about the market and protecting the care that's being delivered to patients within that community or within that geographic region, I think is critically important. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I agree. And so, Dan, I have another question for you. We've talked about how service lines can provide better outcomes. Um, and how about the financial performance? You know, we can't let let that be unseen here. Uh, it's definitely a critical point for, for many health systems as well as service lines. How do, how do service lines um, support maybe payer contract negotiations and then performing well? How do they perform well in those contracts? Yeah, that's a, a good question. You know, the, the financial performance of specialty care of these, of these specialty groups um, has changed, right? It's evolved over time. Um, and, and the types of contracting and how we're contracting also is continuing to, to change. Um, one of the things that COVID did was it, it really showed that not all this care needs to be provided in the hospital, that we can really be providing this care in the ambulatory uh, environment in an ASC, or even in an office-based structure. Or and even or even telehealth, Dan, right? Even virtual. Yeah, you're, yeah, you're absolutely right. So these shifts in, in site of service um, and being proactive in understanding how we can continue to shift and evolve to from acute to ambulatory, from ambulatory to even office-based, I would even say from office-based to even home, the home environment, right? You bet. And that we see a lot of home health agencies popping up all over the place. Yeah, that has to be integrated in the strategy. And then it has to be negotiated appropriately with the with the payers, because at the end of the day, the, the, the medical groups can't just accept a lower reimbursement for shifts inside of service because, you know, then, you know, they're, they're sort of cutting their own throats. 
But if you can negotiate a fair reduction as you go from the shifts in different side of services I've mentioned, the medical groups undoubtedly will pick up some financial opportunity because the cost structure is different when you go through each of those areas. But it needs to be done smart, right? You know, you, know, you, you need to really think about both sides of the equation, both the reimbursement and the impact to it, as well as the cost and the impact to cost. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about these, these services that are shifting in, in sight of service, you know, I've seen quite a bit around imaging and some of the procedural services. Can you speak to some of the, the other procedures or maybe specialties that we're seeing the greatest shifts? Yeah, you know, we're, we're seeing um, these in the ambulatory arena, um, ASCs providing a lot more surgical services. Um, than they've used to. So, you know, you, you, in the past, we may have single, single service line um, ASCs around orthopedics, or in some cases, cardiovascular or GI providing endoscopy, you know, as they're in their own um, ambulatory arena. Now, what we're starting to see is these multi-specialty ASCs really emerging, which, which I think is, is great, right? Because you're able to do a lot more with less. Um, we're we're also starting to see, like in radiology, um, I'm not radiology, oncology. You know, you'll have the uh, hematology oncology group coming together and now partnering with radiation oncology. Right? Historically, that's been separate. So that that becomes important as you start to think about consolidating. Um, these services or combining these services, not so much consolidating, but combining these services, but you've got a contract around it, right? And you have to think about what those, that implication are, uh, both to the competitors that are in the market, but also your growth strategy. Mm -hmm. I, and I think I, I saw a recent statistic that, you know, by 2030, that more than 80% of hospital patient department cardiovascular procedures could be allowed in ambulatory surgery centers. That's oh, yeah. a huge shift. It's a huge shift. And we're seeing that now. So we, you know, we just got done working on a cardiovascular strategy. Um, and a big part of that strategy was how they needed to continue to evolve um, the surgical services, the procedures from an inpatient cath lab, if you will, to more of an outpatient cath lab, or moving, you know, imaging to more outpatient. And as I said, I think this trend is going to continue. It's going to continue to more um, even office-based procedures. I had an interesting conversation with with one of our clients who's an ENT physician, and he's actually going through his surgical, uh, all his surgeries right now, he's looking at by CPT code and he's actually having conversation with an anesthesiologist to say, what can we do in the office-based procedure versus ambulatory? Because the reimbursement is gonna be the same, right? And, and he actually can build some of the technical component around it and it just improves his overall financial performance and it's much better for the patient. Yeah, and it's isn't it fascinating that the physician is involved in looking at this? And I, I see these physicians being involved more and more and more in the strategy planning with systemness, with service lines, and so on. So having these dyad structures and triad structures of leadership, I think is really key. 
Oh, How absolutely. You've seen these leadership structures change. I mean, obviously, we've seen physicians involved, right? Oh, gosh, yes. And the physician leader um, ha has really evolved over the last couple of years quickly. And they're continuing to evolve very, very quick. And in some cases, it's putting the physician leader uh, in a little bit of a difficult position because they've never had training around that. Yet the need for them to really step up, to be part of the strategy, to think about how they need to advance some of their clinical services in some type of a strategic partnership is absolutely critical. And what helps them with this is, to your point, is having a strong administrative partner that you can work hand in hand. Mm -hmm. So Dan, what advice would you have for these CMOs, chief medical officers, or administrators? Yeah, I, you know, um, oftentimes folks will ask me, well, where do we start? And I think the, the place to start is having the conversation, right? Be proactive. Don't wait, because if you wait, there's going to be external pressures that are going to come into your market that are either going to come in and, and um, purchase these independent medical groups or um, steal some of the employed groups and put them into a larger group. Have the conversations now. And yes, and Dan, those, those employed or those employed physicians are more likely to leave for better work-life balance. You got at it. A retail clinic sometimes we've seen that happen quite a bit. Oh yeah, you you are absolutely right. Have the conversation create the strategies. The strategy, it's not like the, stri the strategic plans need to be a 10-year strategic plan, right? It's a one-year, three-year strategic plan. Have the conversation. And especially if, if you're working with an, um, an independent medical group, you do not have to talk about merging. You can talk about having a strategic partnership, a joint venture. You know, strategic partnerships take a lot of different forms, and I'm, I'm happy to share some of those with you. But I think the key to it, Lucy, is you have to have conversations and you have to have pro you have to be proactive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Dan, it sounds like uh, having conversations with the physicians, with the multidisciplinary team um, is, is definitely important to start planning on what where should you start? What service lines make the most sense for your organization? And then, um, you know, how do how to yeah. go into some of these value based contracts, because there's typically better performance when you're managing the whole service line. Oh, you are absolutely right. I mean, so many components, so many implications that you really need to, to consider. Um, and it's fascinating to see where these clinical service lines, these independent uh, specialty care groups are, are going to go. Well, Lucy, I, I want to thank you for joining me today. Fascinating discussion. I, I enjoyed uh, kind of being um, a little more than the host, being the participant today, it's, it was fun. So thanks again for, for coming on. I really appreciate it. No problem, Dan. It was fun to ask you some questions and turn the table. So can you tell us where listeners can go to for more information? Yeah, please. Um, if anybody is interested in um, advancing their medical group strategy, I think we talked about this on our last episode with Jeff Peters. Um, please feel free to, to go to luminahp.com slash insights. There is a medical group strategy page, I, I just a wealth of information. We have a lot of articles there, webinars, and even, even some of our podcasts. Um, or if you're interested in, in just finding out a little bit more, just having a conversation around your clinical service lines, advancing some of the strategies, feel free to reach out to me. My email is dmarino at luminahp.com. Well, Lucy, again, I want to thank you for, for joining me today. Great discussion. I, I really enjoyed it. 
And to our listeners, I especially want to thank you for listening today. Until our next insight, I am Daniel Marino, bringing you 30 minutes of value to your day. Take care. Are you at a crossroad with value-based care? Do you need to chart a future strategy or improve your organizational performance? Visit us at LuminaHP.com to learn more about our consulting services and leadership development programs. Also, you can sign up for our newsletter on our website and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. For more information about value-based care insights, visit the program's page on healthcareradionow.com or LuminaHP.com. Join the conversation using our hashtag, VBC Insights. We are Lumina Health Partners. Thank you for joining us today. Until the next value-based care insight, stay well.